Welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and playstyles of all of the editions of our favorite game. We're going to look at what worked, what didn't work, what led to better games, as well as what got left by the wayside because it didn't lead to a better game. Anyway, we're going to talk about it all, and in this episode, we are discussing the 3.5 edition Unearthed Arcana book. This is episode 6 of that deep dive, and we are on chapter 6 about campaigns. Surely, Brand, Sam, it's only episode 3. We said this is going to be a three-episode series, That's right. we would three, never run over. Is, yes, of course Madness. not. No, no. What do you think about chapter 6, sir? Well, so this is so, some additional rules modules. And I mean, the first most fascinating thing about it is how many of these do actually show up in the 5e DMG. Um, in some cases, it's the most problematic ones. But it's fascinating <laughs> that uh, this book survives in that form sort of across editions. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say that some of this is going to get reworked in the third edition DMG2. Uh, I don't have that book in front of me right now to, to tell you about whether I'm right or not, but I'm, I think I am. Um, but we'll go through where some things definitely show up, and uh, we'll try to try to hit that. Um, so, so first off, uh, we have contacts. Um, and I guess they left their contacts on the cutting room floor. That's, <laughs> that's a problem. You're crawling down on the, looking for your contacts, right? Um, yeah, I mean, you know. Otherwise, you're blind, there. right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and so like, they talk about the different types of contacts. That's pretty cool. You know, I, I like the idea of having NPCs that you care about in some way on your character sheet. I think that's just some extremely basic but useful game tech. Like if that NPC is in some way a stat, then you're invested. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Um, this this section is one of those where I I look at it and I say, you know, it's it's like one page. You know, it's not an enormous waste of space, but it's one of those things where. I just sort of say, okay, you know, it, it's it's nice to have uh, something stated that is a decent idea, but nothing special. You know, I mean, for me, I've been running games for a long time. This type of thinking about how PCs can have different types of contacts in their in their lives, uh, I've been thinking about this sort of thing for a long time. Yeah, sometimes sure. sometimes it's nice to just see it written out and to see it sort of formalized and so then someone who doesn't who hasn't thought of that you know maybe this is a little bit new for them or or maybe just codifying it this way is a little bit new so I think it's worthwhile but it's not anything spectacularly new and fantastic that I that I feel like you yeah, know. for sure I mean remembering to include skill contacts that's something that I think a, a reasonable GM could look past and, and forget to mm-hmm. forget to like include. Oh, but right, but that's sages. Of course, it is. That's mm-hmm. Smiths. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, 
Of course. And so a lot of your skill contacts are also going to be information contacts or influence contacts in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we get to obtaining contacts, and they lose me pretty hard. Um, I really yeah. don't like it being a level progression thing. I think that's that, that makes me uncomfortable mm-hmm. because these characters who are supposed to be such an important part of the narrative just aren't because you meet them and you don't get to like grab them as a contact until you gain what might be as much as five more levels. Well, and look at who that, that fifth level, you know, getting your first contact at fifth level that applies to barbarians, druids, monks, rangers, and wizards. That's a mess to me. Like, are you telling me that a ranger doesn't have any contacts like real substantial contacts until their fifth level. I don't think so. Right. And well, and uh, like I get making me giving boards, lots and lots of contacts. That's fine. Sure. Um, It's just, I wonder if it is going to feel like lots and lots of contacts to have 10 defined contacts in 20 levels of play. Like based on my experience, that's, that could be anywhere from, uh, you know, 60 to a hundred sessions of play. Does that Mm -hmm. actually feel like a lot? Maybe not. Well, and, and why certainly, should... like the, the people in uh, column D, um, the people that no one wants to meet, I guess, uh, <laughs> uh, getting four is just ugh. right. Well, um, I take exception to the cleric and paladin and rogue. The column, the whole column B. Yeah, I mean, all three of those classes. You know, they, theoretically, those classes, Cleric, Paladin, and, and Rogue, they require contacts in every place they go. You know, this is this is one of those things about playing a like I my favorite class is a cleric in, in pretty much every edition that I play, just sure. because I like the concept of the cleric. Yeah. And and what I often tell people when they when they think clerics are boring or when when a DM doesn't know how to give their cleric the spotlight or whatever, my advice is to tell them that cleric, whenever they go somewhere new, the first thing they're gonna be doing is looking for a temple or shrine to their deity. They're gonna look for their people. For sure. And then they're going to find out who is in that town that opposes their deity. And no matter what the real reason, you know, no matter what the group reason that they are in that town, no matter what that reason is, that cleric always will have a secondary, um, you know, focus, a yeah. secondary priority of trying to fix the temple of their deity in that town as you know, f- being a place of importance in that town. And that automatically is going to grant the ability for that DM and, and that cleric and the rest of the party for that matter to help that cleric gain contacts that could end up being very influential, could end up, you know, be- being these three categories, skill contacts, influence contacts, information. I mean, like I understand what they're doing with this section, but I get that they're trying to formalize it in a way that you know th- this this progression with uh, the f- the first main contact not coming until third level for that cleric. Like I get what they're saying. It doesn't mean the cleric doesn't know anybody before yeah. third level, but it just it's this just is not how I run my game. Yeah, I, I feel you. Um, well, and I mean the the other huge problem with contacts is really essential to campaign model. 
it really assumes that you are you have a, a home base that you know about from early in the campaign. Right. And you're going to keep coming back here and maybe having adventures in that settlement. Um, that works in some campaigns, but I wouldn't go so far as to say all of them. Maybe most. Most might be fair. Hard to know. I have no idea what most campaigns look like. Um, right. I mean, your criticisms of Descent into Avernus aside, mm-hmm. we can definitely say that a system like this would serve no function there. Right. Because yeah. you leave Prime completely. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, uh, and you and, and you go to a place where you basically can. You, your f- an initial assumption should be no one in the plane where I'm at right now is an ally, no matter yeah, what. Yeah. Um. So okay, tyranny of dragons. It doesn't help until you get the rise of Tiamat, mm-hmm. uh, and then right. you need to pick pretty carefully because it might or might not work out. Um, right. I actually don't know about Princes of the Apocalypse. Um, I'm very confused on how that one runs. Um, Out of the Abyss? Uh, all that Underdark time, you say. Yeah. What, you mean when you start out uh, captured and you immediately make 10 friendly contacts? <laughs> right. Well, you can trust them. And it, I mean, they wouldn't be, you know, I mean, yeah, I get your point. <laughs> uh, but, but then you get to the surface where you can meet someone. And then you go back to the Underdark. You turn around, turn around and go right back, yeah. Well, right. assuming you play along with the campaign, which you right. don't want to do. But right. I digress. Uh, so, so, so Dragon Heist, it works fine. And yeah. in Mad Mage, it works fine if you're running the campaign in such a way that the PCs keep leaving. Mm-hmm. Which is, I think, the better way to run it. But I think it's not the intended one, way. It's hard to say. Like I think no, I I think it is because if it wasn't, then they they wouldn't have the gates. Yeah, I hear you. Um, and they do but have they, additional but, plot but, hooks. But to, it's to just your point, not enough plot hooks. Well, and, and but to your to, to your point, even though they have the gates, they actually don't encourage at at any point in time. They might mention it in the very in the front matter, but really, as you're reading through that product, you, it's never says, "Oh well." After this, you know, it's probably a good time for your party to refresh. You might want to suggest that they take a couple of gates up and then leave. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's just not that that's not how it works in in, in reading. Um, yeah. how, how it works in play depends on the DM. And so if you don't give the DM that advice, well, I don't know how it's going to run. Yeah. But but back to this. Um, back to this. So here's when I read the little blurb here about the skill contacts. What I think of is heist, not as in Waterdeep Dragon heist, although that does apply. But I think of a heist because the time when your party wants a bunch of skill contacts is when you need very specific events to occur that the party cannot do. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. That you you need to hire it's you know I think think of a, a Star Wars Edge of the Empire okay we don't have a, a a cyber geek in our party that can hack into the system and make a, a fake holocron and and send it out and 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 interrupt whatever data flow is happening for us to be able to do our job and not be spotted right yep. so we need a skill contact to make the deal to get that 
done, or we need a skill contact to grab that information off of, you know, off of the net so that, cause we don't, we can't do that ourselves. That's a skill contact. And the same thing kind of can happen in D and D. Oh, I need a skill contact that can disable this very specific type of uh, some piece of equipment because I don't know how to do it, but I need to get past that challenge in order to reach my goals. Sure. And that's totally fair. Um, but as you said, I mean, but I, the reason I'm saying this is because it really does depend on campaign structure. Right. And, well, and if it depends on that, you know, on having that contract to get to your goal, then I hope you have a board in the party because otherwise you might need to wait for two more levels to like, – that's a problem. Right. Yeah. Anyway, mm-hmm. we've yeah. we've no, spent way, way yeah. too much on, on this on one page. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move uh, on. Yeah, by all means. Uh, so, so the next uh, section is the reputation section, which is um, basically uh, an honor system per se uh, that um, that tells you about uh, how the activities that your PCs perform slash commit. <laughs> uh, can cause them to have an increase in reputation or a decrease in reputation can cause them to gain fame or infamy. Um, and it basically codifies that and provides you with a score, uh, basically a reputation score so that, um, you know, so that, so that uh, commoners, if you go to a new place, let's say commoners will automatically possibly know about your exploits or maybe not. Um, I really like the idea of a reputation or fame score. I think that's mm-hmm. uh, that's a pretty great thing in in principle. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I I like their examples of the events that you that could be performed or events that occur that the parties involved in that could actually increase uh, yeah. your reputation score. Like it gives specific examples, right? I like that. I like yep. that as a way to produce an RPG book, give specific examples. That's perfect for me. Yep. Um, reputation score based on, you know, your, your class and level is not what I would do. Don't. Right. Don't, yep. Don't like it. I, yep. Me too. Um, me too. I, I have a problem with it because I, I think that. Um, well, and uh, just having like having all of them except the like even listing commoner is a weird idea. Let's just let me say that part. But right, um, having all the progressions top out at plus five, they just get there within uh, what four levels of each other. Mm-hmm. Did anything interesting happen here? Like what? Right. right. Why? Yeah. No, I, I hear you. Yeah. Like if there had been one more level, at least column D would have been plus six, but Uh this, this, yeah, it's not good. Um, That, yeah, like it just winds up being a a table of fiddly plus ones to mm -hmm. uh, you know a skill check where the GM decides it applies. Um, The the way I'm seeing this kind, sorry, I'm gonna keep cutting you off. No, no, Uh, the way I'm seeing this idea being really fruitfully used these days. Um, is over in um, Swords of the Serpentine um, that um, um, Kevin Culp uh, created, and I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the name of his co-creator. Um, um, and 
also uh, in some stuff that uh, Strash Ashimovich uh, is working on. Um, and those are both being really like loose with the idea of what constitutes a tool. It's and Emily, so, Emily Dresner, Kevin Culp and Emily Dresner. Thank you. I'm so sorry. I couldn't mm-hmm. pull that up off the dome. Um, no, no. And um, so a reputation is a tool as much as uh, a hammer is a tool. And so mm-hmm. that might be a thing that you receive from um, a career in some of Strash's work. Uh, I, I haven't read uh, Sword of the Serpentine to see exactly how it's deployed in that, but I know that's basically how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think that's very smart. And um, ultimately, it makes me wish that just the function of uh, tools in 5e were a little bit different. But that's fine. I mean, I, so this is another section where I love the idea of it. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I like the way that they talk about it, you know, like the, yeah. the sidebar specifically, the who's, you know, who's affected by reputation. And it talks about you know, being a low level or a high level character and, and, you know, that even if you're a higher level or you have a decent reputation going to a place, someplace new, they might not know you. So when, at what point do they learn about you? That, that sort of thing. I like that conversation. Um, but then, as you said, just having the, the reputation score cap out or the, the, the benefit here cap out at plus five, uh, and, but then also basing things on level, and then, you know, making it so that a one point of reputation is that important, it's not granular enough. And at the same time, you know, it's it's sort of using a machete when you need a scalpel, right? Okay. And then to, to point out something about, I love these tables that they, these suggestions of the suggested, you know, reputation gaining events or whatever. They're great, except the first table is, you know, if you handle this event successfully, you gain one point of reputation. Here's the second table. If you handle it successfully, you gain a half a point of reputation. And the third one, if you handle these successfully, well, it's just not worth any reputation. Right. But That's weird. I mean, but but look, uh, I mean, uh, but (laughs) some of these things in that list are... I mean, I don't see why they wouldn't be worth reputation. Uh, Number 80, a paladin, because it's on a percentage table. So uh, a paladin's quest for atonement leads her to a troll lair too well defended for her to tackle alone. Yeah. So she, so presumably she goes back and gets help and goes and tackles it. I have, I presume that that's worth zero reputation because she couldn't do it on her own. And she was supposedly on an atonement quest, but uh, you know, that's not just going to pop up out of the ether like it's something that just was there. If I was the DM and that was happening, there's a reason she needs to gain atonement, and there's a reason it's that specific troll. Yeah. Well, so and, going and, going and getting the party and then then defeating that creature would actually still gain her atonement. Well, so read ninety eight and tell me um, it's not literally the plot of Tyranny of Dragons. <laughs> Evil clerics gather in secret to summon a monstrous god to the world. Yeah, right. No reputation? Right. Are you kidding me? Yeah. What right. is happening? That's what I mean. So, and and so the, the thing is that we're we're looking at this table sort of um uh 
as a snapshot kind of thing because because the, the very first thing it says after the end of that table it says from the above lists it's clear that site-based adventures in which the pcs function as explorers don't usually earn reputation awards so the thing is that that like number 98 that the evil clerics gather in secret to summon a monstrous god the the event that's occurring is that the party finds out about it and that's what doesn't earn the reputation yeah Right, and so so the formatting and the the um, the way that this is presented is flawed. Even though well, I love I love that they yeah. give these examples of these types of adventures, but it's it's flawed the way that it's presented. Uh, also uh, worth note worth note is uh, number sixty one, which is the plot of Dungeon of the Mad Mage. <laughs> the, the very loose plot. Uh, and, and other and other, a bunch of other uh, dungeon modules as well. Yes. Well, right. Yes. Uh, that, that is for uh, our listeners. A wizard is buried in a trap-filled tomb with her powerful magic items. Congratulations! That's right. yes. uh, you have now summed up like certainly uh, a solid Sarah 50% Rack? of D anD D. Yeah. No. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's fine. That's a perfectly yeah. good adventure. And right. if you seriously complete mad mage and still no one knows who you are mm-hmm. i'm so sorry but like i said right the actual thing that's worth zero reputation is just learning about that oh you got to Waterdeep and you learned about the yawning portal and you know that it leads to undermountain okay well that's not worth any reputation everybody in Waterdeep knows that yeah but like right. i've been in a campaign where we we did stuff for years and years of play and it was Big regional stuff that, in principle, saved whole cities from you know, major incursions of bad guys. Mm-hmm. And then we went elsewhere in the same country, and we were, I don't know, some damn yabo. Uh, just, <laughs> uh, you want what? Get bent. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I guess this is a campaign where I, as a high-level character, still have no reputation. Cool. Right. So like that, that's another thing that factors into my thinking about all this. Like, um, the more you lean on the numbers, the worse it's going to feel. Right. Um, and uh, mechanizing this isn't going to actually be great. Keeping it in the back of your mind as yes, they've got a lot of re- reputation from that is is wonderful. Quantifying it is going to break it. Right. Well, and then that leads us to the next section, which is an actual honor system. So I right. what I said earlier was that the reputation system is kind of an honor system because it's right. about how much reputation you end up getting for doing for lack of a better term honorable deeds in the eyes of the commoners who now look at you as someone worthy of a good reputation. Right. This honor system is actually a mechanical system where you track honor uh, and and it's more than up to Point five, right? I, I'm just going to say we desperately need to get a uh, uh, like uh, like a, a music drop of "Don't give a damn about my bad reputation." <laughs> yeah, uh, sure. Song licenses are expensive, but but surely Jeff will break open the piggy bank for for this key event yeah, in our right. podcasting careers. Isn't there some rule about if you use less than five seconds or something? I don't know. 
I definitely don't know. I have no idea. I'm just making that up. I don't really know. <laughs> a five second um, rule would be very nice though. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so, so this honor system, so, so the first part of it is going to automatically rub some people the wrong way because the first part of it is the um, idea that you have a starting honor score that is based on your alignment. I am one of those people. Yes. I rubbed the wrong way. That, that is why I mentioned that. Yeah. Uh, and so a lawful good, for example, a, a, a character with a lawful good alignment or any, any, any NPC or whatever with a lawful good alignment is going to start with an honor score of 25, whereas someone who is chaotic evil has zero and a neutral character has 10. Sure. So and and there are modifiers. If you um, have a hero um, among your ancestors, you automatically get a positive two bonus to that. And if you have uh, someone who um, was a true failure in their community that is part of your ancestral lineage, then you take an automatic negative two for the ancestral failure. So so you start with this basic honor score, and then you can earn honor, or you can lose honor based on. Uh, different activities that you perform through your adventuring career. For example, I'll give two examples of where you could earn honor and two examples of where you could lose honor. Um, if you um, uh, complete a, uh, a defeat an arch enemy, that is a positive two increase to your honor score. If you make a masterwork item, that is a positive one. If you have a heroic death, that's a positive 10, but of course you just died. So, um, if you to lose honor, you could actually break an oath that would lose you four points of honor. You could own a dishonorable weapon or item, which could also be a cursed item. You also lose four. If you refuse an order from your master, that could lose you three. If you're taken prisoner, that's a negative ten, right? So your honor can go high or low based on based on varying fluid events that occur throughout an entire adventure, not based on the type of adventure itself, which is what the reputation system was trying to do, base it on the type of adventure. The honor score itself uh, also has defined effects based on what your honor score is. So if your honor score is 20 or more, um, you... Uh, so on this table, of course, it says you get the previous three benefits, which I'll talk about in a second, and you get a plus two to your leadership score modifier because you have great renown. Um, the previous two benefits were things like a plus two circumstance bonus to diplomacy, a plus one circumstance bonus to will saves. When the consequence of failing that save would bring dishonor to you, you have such a high honor that the power of your will gives you a bonus, right? Um so if you have very low honor, you get um, uh, if you if you have, for example, if this is an interesting effect. If you have an honor from negative one to negative four, so very very low honor, you get a plus two circumstance bonus on bluff checks if you're behaving honorably. Well, when, when the target is behaving honorably. Right, right. When the tar yes, when the target yes, sorry, I said when you when the target is behaving honorably. Honorably, if you have an honor of negative ten to negative nineteen you get a plus two circumstance bonus to intimidate checks. So there are, in other words, small mechanical effects based on your honor and uh, different items that could occur in the course of an adventure session or two or three or a whole campaign arc uh, affect your honor score. Yep. If I could mash this together with reputation... 
or I won't say if I, if they had mashed this together with reputation, I would be much happier because I feel like these two things should be integrated in a campaign. It, look, if the DM is going to bother to keep lists of whether you acquired property, completed a great deed, healed someone, gave a valuable gift to an NPC, or removed a curse from someone, or you know refused a contest, or overindulged in food or drink, or was convicted of a crime. Like If you're going to keep track of all of those things and do the little piddly math to add or subtract from their honor score, right? Uh, then you might as well also have a reputation following them around. Yeah. Right? I, I hear you, and like, well, we're, we're also about to get to a whole other honor system. Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 The so that's three honor system. systems in a row for a certain, right. from a certain point of view. Um, but I don't know. Here again, like, well, this one in particular, but also reputation to a certain extent, mm-hmm. it just reads to me as this would be great in a video game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're not playing a video game. So here's. So actually, actually, that's that's a very interesting you say that because here's here's what I where I'm going with this in terms of my own DMing. I could keep track of this stuff, right? Sure. But I'm not going to tell the PC they have a certain honor score. Sure. Right? I'm going to use this information to keep track of the honor of the entire party. Yeah. And when they go somewhere. And I mean, I'll keep track of the individuals too, but when they go somewhere, how they are received in that new area or how they are received by that new NPC, that's when my knowledge as the DM of their honor score comes into play. Are they likely to be trusted or not? That's going to make a big difference to how the NPC deals with them. Yeah. And that's where the honor score shines. But of it, course, that's not what this is as written. No, I, I agree with you. Um, I, I, like, I would be much happier with this system if it were explicitly party-wide um, and really focused on group reputation and that kind of thing, because communicating uh, NPC reaction to you know two different extremes of PC in a group is doable. It's just, I don't know, I really like the idea of tracking party stats so that everyone collectively is looking at one shared uh, party sheet and one shared like stat pool or something mm-hmm. for this thing they build together. Um, and that really also liked. actually allows them to use peer pressure. Yeah, for sure. It's something I really liked in um, Warhammer Fantasy 3rd Edition. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the only Warhammer Fantasy I've played. Um, <laughs> and mm-hmm. it, you know, other games have done that kind of shared asset thing too in a bunch of different ways. It's just It's a neat thing when you see it done well. And this could factor into that uh, reputation much more than honor, obviously. Um, But, uh, but yeah. Um, Then you get freeform honor, which uh, is really sort of, you're divided into five basic categories, honorless and trustworthy, honorable in action, honorable in thought, honorable in soul with benefits derived therefrom. Mm -hmm. Um, and then further, you know, plus one and plus two benefits um, based on uh, just potential benefits of honor. It's not really even laid out. Um, 
And they also, this is the point where they mention, hey, by the way, if you happen to use the reputation score from pr the previous portion here of this chapter, you can use this sort of more broad stroke, honorable in thought, honorable in soul, et cetera, et cetera, to help the um, the NPCs and the commoners determine right whether that person's reputation makes them honorable or dishonorable. You know that sort. It's a, it basically uses one sentence to tell you, hey, by the way, you might want to integrate this, which is you know yeah. what I had said just a few minutes ago. Right. But. And and I've I've played a campaign where you know individual character honor was one of the most important things in the game. The game is Pendragon. Um, and also and that's that's the conceit at the beginning and everybody knows it though. Yeah, for sure. And I also played um the Rokugan uh third ed D D uh rules. Mm -hmm. Um and you know, one of the things that we do have to say about this is that this system is closely connected to the one in the three point Oriental Adventures, which uh has just re recently been uh, read and studied in depth by um, Dungeons and uh, Asians for how problematic it is. Uh, and honor rules were one of the things they called out as super problematic. Um, so the Bushido section in here is, you know, touching on that same thing. Um, but at least it's not saying that honor rules, qua honor rules, are mm -hmm. an Asian thing. Um it's talking about how you could also apply those to the Code of the Night Protector. And this this one makes my head hurt a lot. Uh, <laughs> using these honor rules for Omerta is mm -hmm. specifically wrong in so many ways. Um, then the Paladin's Code, um, don't tread on me. Um, I have a really hard time applying this to um, American uh, colonialism, it really breaks my brain. But <laughs> that seems to be the reference here. Um, yeah. And then the Thieves' Code, which is um, a more honorable omerta, I guess. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, like using, trying to even talk about all of those in the same dynamic of honor is. A really strange idea. Uh, the the one thing I like about this section is that it's it's a, it's attributing these to a, a family honor, which means it's trying to get you to realize that when it's talking about family honor, yes, it could be talking about your actual family, yeah. but also it could be talking about your 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 family that you created if you're a thief and you belong to a thieves guild that thieves guild is now your family if you're a paladin you're taking a paladin code and every paladin in your sect knows what that code is and therefore your family because you all know that you won't break that code sure um and so i like that part of it i i, I do want to call out something that really irks me though um not about the mechanics per se, but it says, oh, in the Hero Builder's Guidebook, there are five tables in the section entitled Creating Your Personal History that have information useful in the mechanical honor system. And then it tells you what the tables are. 
Um, I mean, okay, great call out, but don't tell me I got to buy another product, <laughs> right? Like, like I, I hate that. I, that's a, that's a pet peeve of mine. I know it's totally a me thing, but, um, I, I probably should try to look at it as, Hey, that's great information to have if I ever want to get that book. But like, I just, yeah, don't tell me that this system would be so much better if I bought this other thing and had those five tables. Yeah. Yeah. Sam, in the business, we call this an upsell. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Upsell. I do not want to supersize my fries. <laughs> Uh, you can supersize your bookshelf, my guy. <laughs> I already did. Have you seen it? <laughs> um, um, but yeah, so, uh, so you know, to, to round up the honor part, you know, once again, I feel very much about this, this similar way that I feel to the reputation. Uh, this is something for the, in my mind, for the DM to do in the background, if you want it to be seamless, if you yep. want it to be a mechanical thing where the PCs are playing to it, then everything has to be on the table and they have to know exactly how they're going to gain and lose that honor. And you need to integrate it into your game in a way that makes it still remain fun and not just like a new accounting mechanism. Uh I mean, look, sometimes my mind is blown about how much accounting systems we have in here when everybody just ignores encumbrance because it's too much of a pain to do the accounting for that. And every other subsystem we explore and, and introduce has just as much accounting to it. Yeah. So anyway, uh, this is actually um, another thing that pretty specifically comes from um, the Rokugan section of Oriental Adventures. Um, the the becoming the first set of actual mechanics we see here um, when you get to uh, taint absorbing items is just how jade works in Rokugan. Mm-hmm. Um, in Oriental Adventures, and they, they, you know, imagine the existence of a detect taint spell, which I, I yep, again, make me keep saying it. That's just what's happening. <laughs> That's why I'm so, suddenly I'm very quiet in <laughs> yeah. this section of the review. <laughs> but, it's, but you know how to stay safe from taint. I mean, that's yep. Um, anyway, it's about uh, mystical corruption mm-hmm. and you know, a, a progressive mystical corruption. And um, there's a lot of sort of room to tweak this into something that is more about um, the dark powers of Ravenloft. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not really what this is setting out to do. This is much more the uh, sort of mutagenic... Uh, corruption of uh, the, the Shadowlands in Rokugan. Mm-hmm. Um, and that includes all of the stuff about cleansing taint and how you can never completely get rid of it uh, outside of Greater Restoration, which is sort of an odd choice, but it's fine. Just because it's not that high level compared to other spells that are on the list here. Right. I mean, the, but this, this is, this is some, has some serious, you know, that, so, uh, the effects that you, that you suffer from having any amount of taint is, can, can be, so, well, let me put it this way. Um, a tainted character experiences constitution and wisdom penalties in a variety of ways from mild nausea, joint pain, or disorientation to rotting flesh, severe skeletal warping and irresistible murderous urges. So, you know, you, you've got this list of effects of tainted effects 
that 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 literally does start with occasional nausea or vomiting, goes through swelling eyelids and obscured vision, being phlegmy and having a cough, to having you know thickened skin that cracks and turns leathery, up through bones start to warp. Uh, your gums swell and bleed and rot away from your teeth. You're, you hear voices of evil spirits. You have paranoia. That's the moderate. And then severe is, uh, you know, the flesh of your nose rots away, leaving your skull open. Uh, the, the lungs get eaten away from the inside, so you have wet, labored, and painful breathing. Well, if I that mean, first one happens, I have a solution for you. You should get a, a white piece of cloth, make a half mask out of it, and go live in the Paris Opera House as God intended. There you go. Yes, yes, yes. You should do that. And learn to sing uh, because yeah. there's going to be a woman that falls in love with you. Anyway. Uh, uh, Gerard Butler certainly didn't. Uh, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I, I, I think um, that one's optional. I think so. Yes, that, that part's optional. optional yes. But, but um, if you're Michael Crawford, yes, you can probably sing by this point. <laughs> so the thing is that you, you lose constitu- – your constitution score goes down. And when it gets to zero – uh, you die, and then 1d6 hours later, you rise as a hideous, evil creature under the control of the DM. And then it gives this little table that says what you will rise as. And it depends on what level you were when you died. But the choices are Ghoul, Ghast, Wraith, or Bodak. So, you know, that's real pleasant. Uh, great way to lose your character there to become a DM PC. Hey, like. Of a sort. I don't actually hate the idea of this for some campaigns. Mm-hmm. Like, you should not use D and D rules to run Warhammer. That's insane. <laughs> but if you were, like, this represents Warhammer Chaos pretty well, right? Sure, sure. Where you bleed rats, you, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Right. Um, yeah. Like, th- this works for plenty of different kinds of like. Um, supernatural evil sure. games, yeah. and if that's what you want, like the the mathiness of this is actually less bad. Hanging it on con, I wouldn't do. Um, I don't think that's actually right. desirable in um, even the medium term. But um, yeah, other than that, like this is fine. Um, I don't. The, I mean, I'll be honest. The, the the mechanics of it are are much less onerous feeling to me than the honor and reputation systems we just talked about. Well, yeah, they're not um, giant tables of numbers. Right. So, but but yeah. this even the way it's explained and described sort of gives a lot of leeway for how it plays out in the campaign, even if it has some devastating, severe effects. And that, to me, leads to the situation where as long as the expectation that this is this could occur because this is a part of the world or the setting, then, hey, go with it, right? Like, I, this is a fine set of guidelines and, and you know, uh, uh, it offers also a way to get rid of the, the taint, although, as you said, you can't really ever get rid of it 100%. Yeah. Uh, without, for some reason, greater restoration. That, again, is right. a weird choice. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah. uh, then there are prestige classes for uh, the Tainted, and like, of course there are. Um, mostly you want NPCs to take these because these are pretty tedious for a PC. Mm-hmm. I don't really feel like we have a lot to contribute by deep diving into them. No. Um, 
they are almost exactly what you would expect if you thought about a sorcerer that had a high taint score and a warrior that had a high taint score. Yep. And those are the only two kinds it comes in. Yep. Sure. Yep. Yeah. And you know, yeah, whatever. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then we get into the super problematic stuff. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say that then, then the section we just want to skip. <laughs> I, I, yeah. It, eh. So it's the sanity section. And honestly, the sanity rules are not great. Not really ever. Um, this is really very much trying to be um, Call of Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. Like the, the the whole way that sanity checks and uh, sanity loss work is very, very cribbed from Call of Cthulhu. And that just feels horribly lazy to me. And it makes me sort of mad. So let me let me stop you there and ask you, well, what do you think of the sanity rules in Call of Cthulhu? Uh, so I haven't played a lot of Call of Cthulhu, mm-hmm. um, but I listened to a bunch of Call of Cthulhu uh, podcasts. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, how we roll, and so I that's that's my main contact with those rules. Uh, they seem mostly okay. It they're they're mostly playing um, like ongoing characters and not one shots in general, mm-hmm. and so. Um, like the whole nature of the sanity score as a death spiral among your various death spirals uh, does suit what Call of Cthulhu wants, right? Uh, mm. It's not less problematic. I'm not trying to assert that it is not problematic as anything, um, but like you see a horrible thing and suffer from mental illness is not going to escape the the problematic space it's just not going mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. and i'm also not the person to tell you that you can't like problematic things i like plenty of problematic right. things mm-hmm. just should you publish it mm-hmm. yeah. maybe yeah. fine i mean whatever I, so my thing is um for some reason that i have not probably adequately explored I find that having sanity mechanics in a game like Call of Cthulhu is perfectly fine with me. Um, I don't, I mean, I, I know that on the logical basis, just understanding problematic things and the state of the world and, and, and knowing the history of, for example, someone like HP Lovecraft um, and, and also knowing about other types of writers like, um, you know, Ashcroft and stuff like that. Yeah. I, you know, I, I understand why there's a mechanic called sanity you know to track your sanity and your power and and all that kind of stuff in call of cthulhu and for for some reason in that system it works and i think and you know i think it's probably okay with me in my brain logically and i say that it works because i feel like the characters in call of cthulhu are supposed to be quote regular people in the world, in whatever time era you're playing in, usually, you know, sure. traditionally 20s, 30s, right? Yep. And those regular people, when they are exposed to things that are just absolutely horrific, their brain has not been acclimated to being able to handle a 24-hour onslaught of horribleness. And so 
they they can go insane. Now, I feel like for for some reason, like that feels very appropriate to me. But I understand from the mental health perspective why that is so extremely problematic. And I'm I'm not lessening that at all. I'm not trying to excuse it. I don't. I, I'm not saying it's okay. I'm saying if I just compare Call of Cthulhu to D and D, like for some reason it feels like it fits in Call of Cthulhu, and I'm better able to just say, well, that kind of makes sense on in a more philosophical level. And so I I excuse it, and I, I I'm not saying it's okay. I I'm just saying that in in my mind, you know, I understand it more. Whereas in D and D, I mean, look, the first time uh, a dwarf goes out and fights ghouls in a mine, they should be having to make a sanity check, you know, because ghouls are absolutely horrific beings. Uh, anything undead should make any living creature take pause. You know what I mean? And so it doesn't really fit in D and D with me because we yep. don't, we don't do a sanity check for the sort of run of the mill everyday horrors that a D and D PC would, would come into contact with. Right. And like, I have no problem with including cosmic horror as a theme in D and D. I just don't think that D and D is about uh, death spiral mechanics mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. um, like counting down until your character is no longer playable, that that is a really big departure from uh, what D and D wants to do. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Whereas, like, whereas in Call of Cthulhu, that is exactly what Call of Cthulhu wants to do. Absolutely, absolutely. At minimum, it is counting down to the next time you need to uh, go spend a bunch of downtime in the psych ward, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and right. we can now have a scene about the horror of. A 1920s or 1930s psych ward. Oh, yeah. Uh, which, I mean, that's that's a part of that narrative too. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And is again just something that doesn't suit um, the the D and D milieu. Uh, right. And now Sam Dillon could go off on why the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is contains more horror than so many actual horror movies, but I won't because we don't have time. So let's move on. I've only seen pieces of the movie, but I read the book and hard agree. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a horror story. I mean, that was the point. Yeah. yeah, I know, but I'm just, you know, it's one of those movies that is lauded as, Oh, it's such a great, you know, piece of film. Yeah, sure. I mean, the horror story. I'm sorry. It is. Yeah. Those things can coexist. Sure. Yeah. No. I. Yeah. No. I'm not. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying that tends to be the first place everybody goes. Yeah. The first place I go is that is a depiction of a horror film. Yeah. That that right there is a depiction of a life where a person is tortured. Yep. Yep. No argument. So. Uh, so also the fact that um, sanity is a uh, 100 point um, scale in D and D is just. Oh, you you are D and D. You are not a D one hundred system, right? Get it right or pay the price. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, but I do really like the forbidden knowledge um, sidebar, just in principle, because I I like having some kind of mechanic that separates uh, forbidden knowledge from conventional knowledge. Um, this is not something I could bring forward into five E, and I haven't found a way that I want to have that work in 5e. 
because frankly, being a warlock should make you better at, you know, the knowledge that is forbidden and unconventional. Right. Uh, as compared to a wizard who might or might not be good at it. Yeah. Have, have you gotten to the part in my D and D brief game where they f- they find the book of proofs? So I have episode twelve queued up right now. So no. Okay. Okay. I, I, I won't spoil anything, but in in my setting, there are books that are basically forbidden knowledge. But the way that the the way that so far that the players have discovered that they work is 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 the knowledge is is there it's not really forbidden it's just that it's hard to get to and it's hard to translate and it's hard to interpret yeah but it's there um but it could lead to disaster but not in a sanity way so uh so the reason I bring this up is because I, I do also like the idea that there is forbidden knowledge, but I think there's a way to do it in in fifth edition that makes it so that I could go the direction that you're talking about where, you know, a, a warlock, you know, would possibly have, you know, a better access to some of that forbidden knowledge just because, you know, their their existence depends upon making a deal with a powerful patron. Um, and so that, that matters, that should matter. And so, you know, I feel like that's a good way to do it in fifth edition. I, I, I don't know that I would port in any of the other of these ideas <laughs> into fifth yeah. edition. Reading table six, 11, random, indefinite insanity just makes me really unhappy. Yeah. I would like it if that table had not been written. Some of the, some of the other stuff like doesn't seem to me as much like things I just see in people I know and care about, but oh man, just just pass on this. Anyway, we can we can move on. We've already given this more than I wanted to give it, more than either of us wanted to give it. Well, I, I, I do want to call out 5th edition though um, because in the Dungeon Master's Guide, there, is, there are madness rules. Uh-huh. And I know they're there and haven't looked at them in a couple of years. So uh, it says, in a typical campaign, characters are not driven mad by the horrors they face. Uh, but sometimes the stress of being an adventurer can be too much to bear. So the reason that I that I am familiar with these rules is because if you cast, uh, let's see, my warlock has, uh, what's the spell that lets you talk to? Uh, contact other plane? Yes, contact other plane. When you fail your intelligence check... You go mad. Sure. And, um, you know, so, uh, so, so in fifth edition, there are three different types of madness effects. There are short-term madness, long-term madness, and indefinite madness. Short-term lasts for minutes, one to 10. Uh, long-term lasts for hours, 10 times 10 hours, 1d10 times 10 hours. And indefinite, of course, is basically a new permanent character flaw depending yep. on how your DM wants to adjudicate that. And, um, but the, but the, the madnesses are, I just, I, <laughs> I don't even want to say any examples of these madnesses because, you know, when you, when you look at the indefinite, the indefinite madness table is it's, uh, it's all, everything that's on that table is a quote because it's something that the character would express to people. Right. It's intended to be the quote for your new flaw. 
such right. that you gain inspiration for playing your flaw. Mm-hmm. Just like in the initial ideas, ideals, bonds, and flaws, it right. always states it as from that person's point of view. Oh, I I value my freedom, so I'm you know whatever, or I'm I'm very trustworthy, and I and I'm loyal to my every friend, you know, and you know that sort of thing. Like it's written from the sort of first person. I'm doing this. This is my and this indefinite madness table writes it in that same format, except. Yep. It's a statement that would be made by a mad person. Right. And I, I, I got to tell you, some of these are things that um, I've heard people in my family express. Yep. Um, and that's real f- hard. I, I feel that. Um, I know some people who wouldn't admit to believing some of these things, mm-hmm. but they certainly uh, live that belief. Mm-hmm. And then, and and even the you know the long term madness, um, uh, the character experiences uncontrollable tremors or tics, which imposes a disadvantage. Blah blah blah. Like, <sighs> hello, disability, right? Yeah. Like, I, I just, I, like, really? That's I, I, I just, and and there's some things about memory and amnesia and uh, aphasia. You know, the inability to right. speak. Yeah. Uh, e- even the short term madness is, you know. You know, uh, and one of them is is you become incapacitated and spend the duration of of the madness. Remember, it's one d ten minutes. Screaming, laughing, or weeping. Like, look, I'm not saying these things aren't appropriate to be put in in a category that would be called madness or an exhibited behavior by someone who has a break, right? Yep. But I don't know if I want this in my D and D game. Uh, yeah, I I know that I don't. I would not give a player a hard time necessarily for like choosing of their own volition and without really referencing this chapter to have that be their character's negative reaction to something that happened. Like Mm -hmm. your character goes kind of catatonic because of something that happened. I'm not going to be the person to tell you you're doing it wrong. Also because I'm like you're, at my table, you're not in public. Right. Right. If we get it kind of wrong, we're probably still okay. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. It, it didn't need to be recommended as a rule, is I think where we are. Well, and, and, and that's exactly where I was going was, was you know, I'm okay that it's an optional rule. Like I understand some people – it's it's okay for them to have that in their game, and and I I'm I'm not saying anybody's having bad wrong fun. I'm not I'm not doing that, but you know the fact that um, when you when you cast a spell, it's actually prescribed. Uh, you got to make a DC 15, and that's a DC 15 intelligence saving throw. Okay, right. Um, that's not a low number. I mean, I I know that that doesn't feel like a super high number, but that's not a low number. Uh, it says on a failure. You take 6d6 psychic damage and are insane until you finish a long rest. While insane, you can't take actions. You cannot understand what other creatures say. You can't read, and you speak only in gibberish. Okay? So it doesn't tell you that you should go to the DMG and roll on a short-term madness table. Okay? But it describes that you're speaking in gibberish. You can't read. You you know, you can't understand what other people are saying. Um I don't know. I, I just um, that's. I know that 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 uh, there's probably some people out there saying that I probably sound like a snowflake for that. And yeah. 
you know, and I'm okay with that. You want to think I'm a snowflake, whatever. Uh, I don't care. But, um, you know, when you have people in your family that you're close to that have a, a disordered mind or a chemical imbalance or something that could be called mad, uh, some of this stuff, you know, do you want it in your game? I, th- I think it's it's appropriate to maybe discuss it beforehand. Yep. Now, in, in my game, the character, the, the player of the character told me they were going to cast this spell. Sure. So I, I knew and, and he knew what the consequences could be if he failed that. And so we knew ahead of time and handled yep. it appropriately. Yeah. And looking for different consequences for contact other plane is not outside of anyone's reach. Sure. As just some on the fly design. Mm-hmm. Like, unless someone's casting contact other plane and it's your first session as a GM, don't do this by the way. You need to <laughs> you need to start at lower levels and just learn the deal. Right. But right. yeah, like yeah, don't do that. Yeah. I mean, so basically all I'm saying is appreciate that different players have different real life lived experiences with yep certain forms of what would be called insanity and you know you need to respect the players at your table so don't spring something like this on them without a conversation first i mean really don't use any rules module uh just sort of as a bait and switch that's not what we're here to do right, right. Um, everyone needs to know the ground rules going in and that's that's really got to be one of them I have this rules module turned on is super baseline or even, Hey, I saw this rules module. I'd like to consider using it. We're good or not, but mm-hmm. have that conversation. This isn't, this isn't revolutionary stuff to say people should have a basic ability to understand the rules of the game they're playing. Like this isn't first edition D and D where the DMG was the forbidden tome and mm-hmm. it, held all the secret knowledge uh, of the masters of the world that live in Tibet to, to pull the strings of reality. I, I mm-hmm. don't know. Like um, we're trying to be on a much more even playing field in terms of just what can be understood. Man, this section just keeps going. I'm, yeah. I'm not really so, this. Anyway. You know, it, it, it does this horrible thing where it gives this list of, uh, and I'm not going to read any, but it gives this list of, of mental disorders. And, yep. it, and, and it's, it's like, uh, you know, in phobias, right? And, and, it, and it's sort of like somebody just wanted to show off that they know the names of all these obscure phobias. Accurate. Right? Yep. I mean, um, been there. I, I love long words. And these yeah, are sure. Words. I mean, look, you're talking to a guy who loves reading about what you call the different parts of a castle, okay? I, I get it. Right? Same. And I, everybody always ta- you know, makes fun of Gygax for loving pole arms and how he knew all the different, you know, the different types of pole arms. Hey, you know what? Whatever, man. Like, I'm totally okay with that. I know a lot of the different pole arms, too. Like, I'm not, you know, I, I'm, yeah. but, you know, like, this is, yeah, it's, this feels, you know, excessive. I think, we might, have, I think we might have previously done five minutes on the coolest word you learned from Gary Gygax. Uh, mine was necropolis. Oh, I don't even know. I would have to <laughs> like open. I'd have to open the DMG or the or the one E player's handbook, and look for like the first word that I didn't know what it was and had to look it up. Fair. Which I'm not going to do right now because we're already <laughs> over time. <laughs> yep. 
weird, right? That could be a whole other, uh, whole other episode. Um, but, uh, then there's one, there's one final, is it one final or there are two? Nope. There's two final sections. Oh man, there's a whole lot in this chapter. Uh, so the next section after the insanity stuff is test based prerequisites. Good. So, so Sam, I have, some, I have one piece of bad news. We could seriously do an hour on this section. I have feelings on this. This is, <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. I'm okay. Is this going to be a two part episode? Oh, <laughs> uh, it's a danger. Like I wish I was kidding. Um, yeah. No, uh, some I've talked about a, a fair amount in Harbinger of doom. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the LARP communities that I learned gaming from on camera tests, like uh, 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 by on camera, I mean in the course of actual play mm-hmm. when you're in your sure. character, uh, that's a big deal. They're called circle mm-hmm. tests in that gaming community. Mm-hmm. And if you're any kind of spellcaster in those campaigns, for the most part, you need to go through some kind of in-game test to advance. And sometimes this extends to other character types. Um, like if you belong to a particular martial tradition, you might need to undergo a circle test to advance. And there are, there's a lot of design conversation around that and we've largely veered away from using it and that's got a lot of bad along with the good. The good is that you're not waiting for one event to a year of events or more to be able to use the new thing you, you bought. Right. Um, right. And, and that, that really sucks and everyone hates it. On the other hand, you're not getting a cool personal scene where your own like beliefs and abilities are tested. You, you don't get a cool puzzle or a cool um, like moral dilemma or whatever, or just your a cool Hellgrinder fight where the villain cares about messing with you, you personally, and man, that can feel really good. Yeah, to, to be the star. And to make it about whether or not you do the evil thing. And there's there's a lot there. And it's really hard to do in D&D because the increase of XP is inexorable. And you don't want to go have to take levels in a different class just so your XP can be doing something. Uh, if you had actual retraining rules that were worth anything in third ed then saying well you're advancing as a fighter but you want that fighter based prestige class that I haven't gone to testing you for yet just buy another level of fighter and we'll flip it over to your new prestige class when we get there in the plot mm-hmm. that would be fine it's just unfortunately no it's a nightmare to respend classes because of skill points and feats and so on and just getting all the little details and ability score adjustments, like that, that all winds up being a nightmare. But personal scenes in tabletop, like where there's just one or two characters and the rest of the party are engaged listeners, mm-hmm. it's not something that D and D mostly teaches, right? But or is or is good at, right? Uh, okay, I, I'm going to disagree about good at uh, because I've had some really good results with it 
just recently in um, in my birthright campaign. Okay. Uh, the players have been really engaged listeners, and uh, because we're playing online, there's a really great Discord by play in in the text chat while the scene is still going on, and some of it is snark and some of it is you know, talking about, hey, that's a really cool thing that is going on. I'm really into what that reveals about the world and the the conflict that just got set up and all that kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? Right, but that's why I say that's why I say mostly, right? It's not yeah, mostly yeah. good, right? And like, when when you don't train a certain type of behavior into the milieu of playing the game, then most players aren't going to be used to it, and so they're not going to do it well. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I, I agree that D and D just hasn't ever taught it. Um, it isn't common to see it taught um, in in any game, um, like. We just finished playing uh, Headspace with uh, Eric Paquette and uh, Jared and Rabbit and Kevin Culp. And that game completely depends on its whole dynamic of solo scene that is never a solo scene. That's that's it. That's the pitch. Uh, because much like uh, Sensate or like in Leverage, how they're all on earbuds, right? Uh you can always communicate with the other characters and they can always kind of engage in scenes they aren't personally present for. Um, right. And that can be a great dynamic. Well, D&D doesn't mostly do that, but mm-hmm. it can work really well if you have taught players what it is like to be an engaged audience member for another player. So having said all that, a whole test scene is a lot. Yeah. That's a lot to ask. So you want to write a test that incorporates the other players. Okay, so now your next problem is I need a test for each player's cool thing at around sixth, around 5th to 7th level as they pick up their prestige class. That's horrible. Well, what if I combine them? Well, thematically combining them is a much harder writing task. Sure. Right, and that was that's been a major problem in in LARPing that has been solved in various ways of combining tests or like uh, quasi retroactively declaring, "Hey, that cool thing you did, that was your test." Right, okay. and, and that's that's regarded as legit because you know there was a a, a critical emotional moment and you were at the center of the thing. Well, now you can trip over to having the rest of your powers. It's fine. Um, I don't know. Like I said, I have a lot of feelings about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I understand that. Uh, I, I feel like, I feel like this is the type of thing that is, is such a, a, a could be such a great idea, you know, just um, yep. like even, even the, you know, the examples, you know, that they give for the, for the different, you know, prestige class tests are interesting from a certain perspective. Right. And, and, but as you said, you know, the problem is then you're, you know, you're, you're, you're focusing one PC. Yep. And it's really hard to, to make that work well for a lot of people. I'll say, I won't say for everybody. Cause I think there are, there are plenty of tables where if, one character or player has the spotlight 
the others are still engaged. They're not just suddenly off, you know, talking about whatever. Right. And and that is one of the better lessons that anyone can take from critical role, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. Yeah. It's something I felt like you have handled really well in uh, D and D brief. Um, Oh, thank you. (laughs) I uh, uh, like in the episode I just listened to um, Konos just got a lot of spotlight time, Mm -hmm. right. Uh, Leading up to them going to the palace of mud. Um, and my impression at the time was that it the scene had enough stakes and such that the player stayed pretty focused and interested in what he learned and what happened to him. And, and uh, similarly, the, the party cleric had a bunch of essentially solo scenes with uh, her temple back in the starting city, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah. I, I, I try, (laughs) you know, and I, and and I won't, I won't claim to be an expert or claim to do that very well for a lot of games. Um, I happen to, those players are really just really well engaged people. So it's a lot easier for me to do it and they go with it. Um, if you have players that aren't, that aren't there yet, uh, or just aren't naturally, uh, prone to, to being there, it's a lot harder to manage. Um, it's one of the it's one of the trials of being a DM, actually. I think yeah. for any system, right, is keeping the entire table engaged at all times. Yep, for sure. So, anyway, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, anything else to say about uh, the the prestige class tests? Uh, no, I, I mean it extends to feat tests also. Um, yeah, it's. Some of them are just sort of very plain ideas. It's fine, whatever. I, I mean, care. some of these things are are great ideas if you're going to have a few one-on-one sessions with with one PC or right. DM. And and right. if you can do that, that's great. My schedule does not mostly permit that. So a, a big shift to online play, you know, creates possibilities that are hitherto unexplored. Um, mm-hmm. Sure. But yeah, I think we can move on. So the next section is level independent XP awards. Sure. This is just the 5e system, mostly. <laughs> it really is. Um, it's fine. I mean, whatever. It's it's fine. It's an alternate way to deal with some XP. I'm fine with it. I, I, I hate XP systems. Um, like the XP I hand out is very, the points are all made up. I just I'm gonna quote a number that's gonna sound satisfying for based on what I've done in previous sessions and how intense the the like plot advancement and conflict was this time. So I don't sit down and add up monsters and come up with numbers. That's very boring and I don't have the brain space to do it at the end of a session or at any other time. So this this section is non-existent to me, but um, <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't um, shy away from XP systems. I don't, I mean, uh, you know, you know me, right? I'm, I'm Mr. Hey, gold for XP. I'm totally okay with that. Sure. Uh, and, and I think that, that, that inculcates a certain type of game and a certain type of style of play. Uh, and, and I'm okay with that because I know that and I know the consequences it could have. Um, and, you know, I don't know. I don't really have feelings one way or the other uh, for, about this particular 
system that they've presented here. Um, it's just an alternative way to sort of think about things, and I'm okay with that. You know, whatever. I'm not. You know, I think in five e, if we if we try to if we try to take this and put it in five e, or try to take sort of what's happening here and think about five e, five e really does. Um, uh, favor the milestone kind of approach where yep. it's not so much about the amount of XP, it's about what did you do and is that enough to level up? Yep. And and um, pretty much every adventure is written that way with maybe the exception of Dungeon of the Mad Mage um, and maybe with the exception of a couple of the early ones where they still were stating, you know, the XP, they should have this much XP at the end or you could just level them up. Well, right. And then... Um, um Horde of the Dragon uh, Queen, you definitely see, if they complete this side quest, if they save this NPC, for each NPC they save, kind of uh, nickeling and diming that... I, I remember seeing that in just tons of low-level adventures over the years and never, ever seeing it above about third level. Mm-hmm. Because by that time, by the time you get to the sort of mid-levels... You know, it's not. Yeah, nah. I mean, we could talk about. It. We've got whole episodes on this. You know, right. it's, it's it's just a style of play, and I think fifth edition really supports milestone play, where the 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 play is about the story. And yes, it's about what you defeated and what challenges you faced, but it's not about whether the beholder was worth twenty nine thousand XP or thirty thousand XP, right? Yeah. Uh, so so that's where that line is, and you know, whatever. Anyway, that leads us to the very last portion of this book, which is the afterword. Yep. <laughs> and uh, let's say some some paragraphs that might constitute guidance on uh, the Eternal Champion. Sure. Like, if you need guidance on how to play the Eternal Champion, I I, I would suggest that maybe just reading... Um, a synopsis of the stories would probably get you there. <laughs> um, that's fine. Like I have nothing against that idea. Uh, I also just watched uh, The Old Guard, and so uh, my, my personal headcanon is that uh, uh, Andy uh, grows up to become um, Furiosa. <laughs> nice. <laughs> because you can't prove to me that Fur- Furiosa uh, is not that old because we don't know how long ago it was. You know what? I'm off topic. <laughs> so this afterward, all it's really doing is saying, um, you know, if, uh, if, if you want to use m- many of the variants in this book, you might need to think about what type of campaign you're going to run. And here are some ideas of campaigns that would be particularly good frameworks to use a large portion of this book. And so they talk about having a campaign where uh, there's a world spanning organization um, and uh, you know, the, the PCs have access to uh, a base, a home base, and then also they can go to different places, you know, and it gives some examples of organizations. Uh, there's a shifting worlds suggestion. There's the eternal champion. It's really just, you know, a few paragraphs on here's how to make this work. Here's, here's how this book helps you run that type of campaign. Yep. And then that's followed by a check checklist set of pages of checklists that allow you to determine which types of rules from this book you're going to use. So it's literally 
a place where you can put a check next to, you know, uh, which classes or races or, or, you know, which skill system variant or which adventuring variant, you know, from each chapter that you're going to use so that you can presumably, you know, give that to your players and say, Hey, we're playing a campaign. Here are the variants that we're using. And also like that they're, they include the dungeon master's guide variants. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good idea. Yeah. Anyway, um, that, that's going to round out the book for us. I yeah, think it's the end. We made it to the end of this book. I hope you all have enjoyed listening to us deep dive in this book and try to provide some personal context on how we engage with all the stuff in here. Um, we could have, we could have practically read this thing on air in the amount of time that we spent talking about it. But I, I like to think that the the thing we're bringing to the table is our personal experience and uh, you know our sense of camaraderie. Because getting to talk to Sam about it is way more interesting than me bloviating on my own. <laughs> if you want to hear that, I have a blog, guys. I I tend to think that the um the the value that I hope we are providing at least in part in this in this podcast is just the idea of we're well versed enough in different styles of play from different editions and also from different games just completely different games not just D&D that we can bring that perspective into reading a book that is an older edition and talk about how that probably affected the the latest, the current edition, or even how systems from other games have been brought into D and D over the years. You know, there was a lot of talk when Fifth Edition came out about, oh well, you know, the inspiration mechanic that's really just stealing from these other you know games over here, and oh the you know whatever. And it's sort of like, well, is it stealing or is that just how RPGs are? That this is how we do RPGs. We take good ideas from various different sources and we integrate them into the current edition if we think they work. And really this book that we just took a deep dive into is really a collection of ideas. Some that come from just the designers brains that, that are only working on D and D and playing D and D and some that come from other games because some of the designers play other games and some that come from design aspects that people left on the cutting room floor at one point, but they thought, hey, it might be cool to give people this option, though. Let's put it in there. And then when you look at that and you look at 5th edition, how it is now, you know, there's quite a few ideas in this particular book that trace almost directly to 5th edition. It's pretty amazing, actually, when you think about it that way. Well, and uh, I mean, I think I've mentioned on air previously, if not in this episode, that um, a lot of things like the the taint rules also show up in Heroes of Horror, and right. maybe also Libris Mortis. Uh, so there's some other third edition books that are really touching on that, and mm-hmm. the DMG two is going to recapitulate some of the um, reputation stuff, mm-hmm. and it's going to add um, organization level rules that aren't found here, but aren't irrelevant to the the sort of function that they're trying to communicate here. It's kind of interesting to think about it that way, because what that means is this was sort of a view into what they were already designing for the game anyway, right? Yep. 
Yep. And that actually kind of that if if we take that and and you look at look at game design in that way and you think about how we have these unearthed arcana articles and playtest documents still for fifth edition and how that's giving us an eye into hey there's a design process going on here and they're no longer just doing the 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 design work in a little bubble they're actually putting it out there and getting feedback on it. I mean, that's a that's a pretty big evolution in itself. Yep. You know, one of the things about this book is that uh, the, the title is already used for something else aside. It is so hard to imagine uh, Watsi as we see it now ever releasing uh, essentially their scrapbook mm-hmm. and just saying – like, we have no idea if you really even want this. We don't know if there's a market for this because I refuse to believe that 2004 Watsi knew to any degree of confidence that this book was going to do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if it did do numbers or not. I really, really doubt it. Um, but, you know. <laughs> yeah being a little uh, tight-lipped on their sales is always been their way. Um, just. Um, but also you got to think back then it was also the very, I mean, relatively speaking, early days of the internet. Oh, for sure. In, in yeah, terms yeah. of the gaming community specifically. Right. Yep. Um, uh, so, I mean, I mean, you know, there's. Ian world was already long in the tooth because uh, they had, it, made their bones on 3.0 and this is a whole half edition later. I mean, my God, (laughs) but I'm just saying, right. Like there's, that's true. You're making, you know, Eric, no, you know, okay, fine. But uh, the Ian world aside, um, like at the same time, the average D and D player didn't have access to the plethora of tools and resources and, and just flat out blogs that we have now. Oh, for sure. So wizards of the coast, putting out a book like this back in 2004, that's like them putting out Xanathar's guide, right? Yeah. In a very real way. So let's wrap this up. Uh, do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? Oh boy. Uh, I really hope you guys have enjoyed what we've tried to do here. Um, it's been, uh, an interesting journey through this book. And we'll probably do other sort of single book deep dives again in the future. Um, what are we doing next, Sam? If you, listener, if you want to put in your two cents about what you think we should talk about, you can email us at dndbrief at gmail.com. That's d-n-d-e-b-r-i-e-f at gmail.com. And you should tell us really soon because we record fairly regularly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway... So, sir, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I write for Tribality.com. My personal blog is BrandisStoddard.com. You can find me on Twitter at BrandisStoddard. And I also have a Patreon that is BrandisStoddard. And I am DM Samuel on Twitter. And you can find me at RPGMusings.com. And you can email me at DDBrief. And I love to talk about games. So if you want to talk about games, just shoot me an email. Uh, and other than that, I think it might be time to say goodbye. All right.